in Acts chapter 8, and I believe if we were down where you guys are saying, it would have been verse 37. Okay. And we, yeah, we were there because we were talking about that textual problem, the fact that uh, the better manuscripts would not include that uh, verse. So we'll, yeah, we'll pick up from there. Um, but kind of summarizing here from point uh, D, we see that uh, Philip has delivered this message to the eunuch and uh, the eunuch believes based on the fact of uh, uh what he's heard here uh, from Philip and Philip's clarification of that scripture. We see that uh, Jesus was presented uh, to the Ethiopian eunuch as the uh, means for salvation and the uh, one that's going to cause to be saved, and he believes. And so what is this question from there? What stops me or hinders me from being baptized? And we see that in verse 36. Um, but let's read... From uh, We'll pick it up in verse 35 and read through the end of the chapter, um, and then we'll get into our uh, information here for today. Um, verse 35, it says, Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the, Ethiop- and the eunuch, <laughs> I want to throw that Ethiopian in there, uh, said, See here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. And so we see the end of uh, the conversation here with Philip and uh, the eunuch, and then Philip's uh, translation to another place. So we'll uh, probably finish the chapter out here today and start in the chapter 9. But before we do... Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful uh, for this day and uh, grateful for the opportunity to be back together again and enter into uh, the study here uh, with regard to Philip and the eunuch and to see how the gospel uh, now is expanding out uh, from the Jews uh, and then out from the Samaritans and then uh, out to the Gentiles as well, just as your son said at the beginning of uh, the book. And so we're grateful for that, grateful uh, that we're able to be recipients of, uh, of being able to have salvation uh, go out from the Jews and unto the Gentiles. And we're uh, grateful that your grace provided for that. Uh, we pray that as we continue through this study that we would uh, continue to glean things that make us appreciate uh, more what we have by grace. For it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, and so I'm going to just back up here a little bit because it's a funny place to start there from verse 37. Uh, but in th- verse 36, we saw the desire uh, for baptism uh, from the eunuch. And so this happens as they continue in their travel. And it's interesting that they're, they're out in the mid- middle of desert, right? And they find certain water. <laughs> Go ahead. You know, it's interesting. This, this 
Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, there, there's the text. Yeah. There's a variance oh, there, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. Thirty-seven. Uh, so as you, we'll get there in a second, but as you get to verse thirty-seven, a lot of manuscripts don't in, include that uh, particular verse there, and I, I should have looked up. <laughs> um, I have textual problem there, and I probably went meant to go back and and do more checking into it, but that uh, verse is not in some manuscripts. Um, so we see that they found certain water out here in the middle of the desert. We see that the eunuch uh, requests clarification of any barriers uh, to his baptism. And so we see that word for uh, hindrance, which means to provide a lit literal or figurative obstacle to accomplishing a desired task. And then we looked at a couple of verses where that word is used, uh, specifically some that related to, to baptism. And so uh, I don't remember going to these verses last week. Do you guys remember going going to those? Uh, no, to baptism, the baptism of Cornelius, and then um, let's just go there. <laughs> Acts chapter eleven and verse seventeen. We're going to see similar. Can I, ask something? What do you, I don't understand what you guys are saying about thirty-seven not, not being found. Well, you have different. Uh, you'll learn this in some of the. Uh, bibliology courses that there are different manuscripts that they're drawing from uh, to translate uh, scripture and so some of them will have information in them that others do not and so this verse is a variant where uh, verse 37 where it is not there in some texts. So. The reason I even say that Don Courtney is because MacArthur is, even, is, is saying that in his little notes it says this verse is not found in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts. So right. Uh, well, I have it. I have it. I'm looking at it right here. The only manuscripts have it are just uh, E is the oldest one, 36, 323. So it's just a, one really old, fairly old manuscript that even has verse 37. Almost all, including the majority of the texts, majority of the Old Testament, New Testament texts don't even have it. So the majority texts don't. So usually it's an argument of older or more. So the majority of texts versus the older texts. Older and majority both. Sure. This but this is, yeah, saying that means that both of those are in that ballpark. There's only a couple texts that would yeah, include that verse. Well, I mean, I don't think it really, I'm just a simple kind of guy. I don't see any relativeness to it as far as the effectiveness of what this message is all about. When that's that's the case with most textual variants, there's not many that are going to affect Scripture in a major way. It's okay. just you're wanting to be as true to, to Scripture as you can. Um, no, no, that's fine. Um, Acts chapter 11 and verse 17. Um, and we see that word for hinder used here Did I get the wrong verse again <laughs> Acts chapter 11 oh yes that's the right verse pick it up at verse 14 it says uh, who shall tell thee words whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved and as I began to speak the Holy Spirit fell upon them as, a, uh, as on us at the beginning then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
For as much then as God gave uh, them like gift as he did unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand or hinder God? And so he's talking about here and breaking down why he came unto Cornelius's household as he did. He's been questioned here about it. And he's saying, hey, they received the Holy Spirit and they were saved just like we were. Right. And so who am I to stand against or, or to hinder God? And so we see it used in that way there. Uh, we also see it used over in uh, Acts chapter 8, and verse 36. And we won't go there as it's in that similar context. But um, um, and that's just a recap of, of what we were looking at in, in uh, Acts chapter 8. But the request belies a eunuch's lack of knowledge as to the true purpose and intent of physical baptism. And so physical baptism represented a public acknowledgement of the spiritual work accomplished by the Holy Spirit. Uh, we see this uh, for, for spirit baptism and what it truly means. Uh, you got a glimpse of it here, but go with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. And we see that spirit baptism is something totally different than physical baptism. First uh, Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. And let's go back just a little bit because I like the way in this verse or in this uh, uh, context, you see interwoven, if you look deeply here, the three persons of the Godhead and how they're working together to accomplish plans. And we we always see one emphasized, right? You know, people think of God the Father all the time, or they think of, of the Son and the work that he accomplished. But I like the way Pastor Dave said it long ago, where one is present, the other two are present as well. They're always working together, intimately together, to accomplish uh, God the Father's purpose. But pick it up in verse 1. He says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant, you know that you were Gentiles carried away with dumb idols, even as you were led. Wherefore, I gave you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God called Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. So here you see the Spirit, the Holy Spirit working. Uh, verse five, and there are diversities or differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And so here you see the second person of the Godhead working. Right. And there are diversities of operations, but the same God, which worketh all and in all. You see God, the father working. And so all three persons of the Godhead uh, in another verse or uh, in Ephesians, you see. That the son is the one that ascended up on high or descended into the lower parts and gave gifts to men. Right. But he's not the only one here. You see all three persons of the Godhead working intimately together to provide the use of, of your spiritual gifts. Verse seven, uh, seven. But the manifestation of the spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For the one is given by the spirit, the word of wisdom to another, the word of knowledge by the same spirit to another faith by the same spirit to another gifts of healing by the same spirit to another working of miracles to another prophecy to another discerning of spirits to another various kinds of tongues to another interpretations of tongues. And so what is he saying here? You have these Corinthian saints that are dealing with 
difficulties in using their spiritual gifts connectedly, right? They're wanting to individualize their spiritual gifts and say, hey, this is my gift. It's a great one. Look at what I can do, right? It kind of sounds like Simon back there in Acts, right? When he was wanting to have those gifts so that he can shine the light on himself and not use this to work together in a connected way, the way that God intended. In verse 11, it says, but all these work at the self, uh, the one and self same spirit dividing to every man severally as he will. For as the body is one and hath many members and all members of that one body being many are one body. So also is the Christ. And so as you look at this body of Christ, where Christ is the head and we are at the body, these body parts have different functions. They have different abilities. And yet it's the same mind that's energizing and working through each body part to do what they do. Right. If we're not connected to the head, we can't use our spiritual gift right. Verse 13, he says, for it by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free and have been made men all made to drink into one spirit. So you see that unity, that, that connectedness that's there uh, as it relates to the body. And how did we get there? We got there through spirit baptism, right? And so that physical baptism, it's nice, right? It's a nice public acknowledgement of what the Holy Spirit has already done, but it is not necessary for your salvation, right? And so uh, he comes to know this, I suppose, <laughs> in the future. Um, but as we look back um, also over to Galatians chapter 3, and I want to touch there before, before we leave, because what you're seeing here in the book of Acts as we're starting to develop is just what we talked about from the outset, right? We talked about uh, my good friend there at Christian Care Ministry. I'm not going to call him by name, but he did a great job of outlining the book of Acts into the expansion of the gospel from the Jews to the Samaritans to the Gentiles. And now here you're seeing it unveiling, right? The Gentiles have now received uh, the gospel. But pick it up at uh, verse 23 of chapter 3 of Galatians. It says, But before faith came, we were kept under law, shut up unto the faith, uh, with uh, which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For you all are the sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. You see, it's faith that brings all of us, whether you be Jew or Gentile, whatever you are, into Christ. Verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into the spirit have put on Christ. And so what did that spirit baptism allow for you and I? It allowed for us to be placed into Christ. And now as we're walking out these lives, as we're living as who we are in Christ, what does the outside look like? Looks like Christ, right? You put on Christ almost like you put on your clothes this morning. And so that uh, is covered in the activity of how you conduct yourself. In verse 28, it says there is neither. And really here that there is. Let's translate it like it is in Scripture. It says in him is neither uh, Jew nor Greek in him is neither bond nor free 
In him is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. You want to solve the racial problems of the world? You want to solve the gender problems of feminine issues? And you want to be a, a, a proponent of all of these different things? Well, teach people to live as who they are in Christ. I say it all the time. The church should be the perfect manifestation of what it looks like to have unity as people. You can't ever see that in the world, right? No one's ever going to look at somebody on the basis of who they are and appreciate that person in the world. Why would they? You have some bias <laughs> towards yourself. Uh, and that's just the way it is with people in human nature. But in the church, we can truly all see ourselves as one because we understand ourselves for what we really are. We are nothing apart from God. We are all one and unified in Christ. In verse 29, it says, and if you be Christ or belonging to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so uh, I thought it good to go to those verses that dealt with spirit baptism there because you're seeing it take place here with this Ethiopian eunuch in chapter eight. Even though he might not realize all the ins and outs of what's going on, this took place in him as soon as he believed the facts of the gospel. So while he's doing this physical baptism, and wanting to take place in that because that's all he knows. Guess what? A more mighty work took place inside of him when the spirit baptized him and placed him into Christ. And so going back over to Acts chapter eight and now to that verse we were talking about. And thank you, Brother Don, for doing some quick work there off the <laughs> off the hoof to uh, give us uh, the work I didn't do <laughs> to give us the. Uh, uh, what the manuscripts say concerning that. And I just had a small note in my Bible that the better manuscripts don't include it. Um, but you, you certainly added more to that. <laughs> and there's only five <laughs> that, that would include this. So I would advise, I'm not going to tell you guys what to do, but uh, in my opinion, this verse could be left out just based on the, the evidence of um, what, what manuscripts included. But in verse 37, it says, And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, Thou mayest, uh, speaking to the eunuch of being baptized, and he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so verse uh, 37, we see if this were to be included, you would see the need for faith. And so he says, I believe uh, with all my heart, heart speaking of the mind, the will and emotions. And then you see the statement of active faith. And so uh, Philip is telling him, hey, you need to believe. You need to believe uh, these facts. And he's saying, well, I do believe with all uh, my heart, soul and mind. Um, and so active faith uh, is stated in the fact that he says, I believe and the content is Jesus Christ. And we see the human uh, seen as the promised Messiah now glorified and resurrected. So we talked about that name Jesus right before as Philip was preaching this to him. This Jesus is the person that walked the earth. Right. This person that came down from heaven and took on a human body, took on human flesh, lived and died. But as Jesus Christ, he is the glorified and resurrected Messiah. Right. The one that was promised that they rejected. But he's now glorified and seated at the right hand of God. And this is the one that you need to place your faith in. Uh, and he goes on further there to say that he believes that this person is the son of God. The identification with the eternal glory of the son with the person who is Jesus Christ. And so 
Uh, what does that say? That says, uh, just like that song, Down From His Glory. You guys ever heard that one? I think we sung it around here a few times. But Down From His Glory, ever-living story. My God and Savior came, and Jesus was His name, right? He came out from heaven, stepped down from His glory, and took on a human body to die, or to live and die, and be resurrected and glorified again. In verse 38, uh, so again, verse 37, I would say uh, most manuscripts, the better manuscripts probably would not include that one. Uh, in fact, Brother Don, as he's pointed out, only five included. And believe me, there's a lot of manuscripts beyond uh, five. Uh, and so 38, we see, and he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And so the baptism of the eunuch. Uh, we see that he immediately asks for the halting of this chariot. And so Philip gives orders uh, uh, over the eunuch's chariot, and Philip's orders are obeyed. Now, <laughs> interesting thing here, they're traveling both in this chariot that doesn't belong to Philip, and he's telling them, hey, halt, <laughs> stop, the, stop the chariot. Let's go down and baptize this guy. There's water right there. And they listen. And so they enter into the water uh, and, and it's very important here. And I want to call emphasis to this. I think I alluded to it last week, but I want to emphasize it here because you have lots of different teachings concerning baptism. Right. There are some people that say, oh, you just sprinkle water over the top of them and they're they're baptized. Uh, there are some people that say, oh, yeah, just dip their, their face in the water and that, that's good enough. Well. If you're going to do it and you're going to do physical baptism, let's do it right. Right. The word for baptize means to immerse. Right. <laughs> Troy, Troy's idea of baptism is to push people into the water. Good, good job. Do you think you're uh, you're never baptizing anyone? Right? <laughs> you might drown someone. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> but that idea of immerse. Right. So, I, I mean, I think it's a good idea, maybe not in Titusville, the water is a little nasty, but when you go out into the lake and you immerse someone into the water, right? If you're going to do it, do it. <laughs> go, go all the way with it. But it has the idea of going into the water. You see that he, he didn't just go and go over to the water and, and dip it up and then put his face in it or sprinkle it over his head. No, he went and immersed himself into the water. And so it's, it's very interesting, people in their, their theology surrounding this. Uh, but you see the entry in, into the water. Uh, the body of water was large enough for Philip and the eunuch to enter into. And you see the entrance into the water establishes that it was deep enough for immersion. And so to dip him into the water. Now, baptism, as we look at the baptism, we said it there. Baptism is immersion into water. And uh, Philip uh, baptized the eunuch. And so in verse 39 and th uh, through 40, we see that uh, after this action, Philip is miraculously <laughs> translated to a different place. So this is very interesting. Uh, pick it up at verse uh, 39. It says, and when they were come up out of the water, there's another preposition that says, hey, they were in water. Right? <laughs> they came up out from the water. Um the spirit of the Lord caught away Philip that the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found in Azotus and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. 
Now, here I think is an unbelievable miracle happening. And why might the Holy Spirit have done this? Why, why might God have done this? So as you think about it, this guy has only read this verse, right, from Isaiah. He's been clarified on this verse by, uh, by Philip. I keep wanting to say Simon. <laughs> He's clarified as to what this verse really means. And now, guess what? What have we seen throughout the book of Acts? We see the gospel given, and we see something to validate the giving of that gospel. Here you see the gospel is given, he believes, and you see a miracle done there right in his sight that I think confirmed everything that he had already believed. Right? Water in the desert? <laughs> well, <laughs> water in the desert too. I don't know if that just appeared out of nowhere, but we, we do see that that Philip is taken physically from one place and found in another. So imagine you're just sitting there in this chariot and you see this guy that you've been talking to just gone and he's in another place. Is that a, an amazing thing? Does that confirm to you, hey, this was an act of God that was done here? And so we see this with, with uh, the eunuch. But pick it up, uh, go back to verse 39. Uh, we see this post-baptism activity. And so after they came out of the water, the verbiage of action is very interesting here. And what do you think our word for caught away is? Not you, Brother Dan. <laughs> I knew you knew it. Mm-hmm. You got it. He's caught away, harpazo. Now we see this word, of course, used in other places of Scripture. So I want to show them to you so you really get the flavor of this word that's used here for what happened uh, with Philip. Go with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 2. And we see this used of the action of Paul after his stoning. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 2. Now pick it up in verse 1. It says there, It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such a one caught, or such a one caught up to the third heaven. And so you see this word for caught up here has the idea of snatched, seized and caught up. And so I really believe Paul died and he was caught up to the third heaven, but he, he went back again uh, and he expands on it from there. But we just want to look at that one word there for, well, he, he, he says it again in verse four, pick it up in verse three. He says, and I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell God knoweth how that he was caught up into paradise. And heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Uh, and so this uh, word for lawful there has the idea of, of permissible. It's not something that is even permitted to be uttered. And so very interesting things there stated of Paul and his uh, activities there after his stoning. Over in First Corinthians or First Thessalonians chapter four and verse seventeen, we see this is used of the action that will be uh, taken by the Lord with believers in the future. And so we anticipate being a part of this 
rapture. First Thessalonians chapter four and verse 13. We'll pick it up. And he says there, but I would not have you ignorant, <coughs> brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep through Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we, we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not proceed, not that word for prevent, but really proceed, the ones which are asleep. So what is he looking at here? It's interesting how Paul's perspective is, and we see it over in Philippians 2, that people who die before the coming of the Lord actually benefit, right? Because they get to be in the presence of the Lord before the people that are living. And guess what? There's an added benefit to it in that you're going to be the first ones to resurrect. And he's saying those that are living, hey, they might not have had to experience death, but they're not going to precede those ones that, that did die, right? And so there's, you, people think of death as the worst thing that could ever happen. Well, you, you kind of have to die to enter into the presence of the Lord, right? And so we see this there here. Uh, pick it up in, in verse 15. He says, for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. Oh, I read it already. 16. It says, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an angel, and uh, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up. There's a there's a rapture word uh, together with them in clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Really, you can say into a meeting with the Lord in the in the air. Um, um, and so should we ever be with the Lord. And so you see our future there after we're caught up with him. We're going to be with him forever. Right. With him forever. And those people that die, we think, boy, this is so terrible because we miss those individuals. But guess what? They're in the presence of the Lord right now. They're going to be glorified at the rapture, and then they're going to be in the presence of the Lord forever, forever with the Lord. Uh, uh, just an amazing thing there. But you see this idea here of rapture. Now, it's interesting that a lot of people will say, oh, you don't find rapture in the Bible, right? Well, okay. You want to call it caught up and caught away, uh, whatever you want to call it, it's there. It's there multiple times. Uh, we also see it over in Revelation chapter 12. In verse 5, and it's used here of the action that happened to the Lord after his crucifixion. And so you see the anatomy of this word is looking at a physical grabbing, usually of the body, and transferring to another place. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 5, and we can pick it up at verse 1. Now, this is an interesting context of scripture because it covers a whole long period of time, right? You're looking at this as a single action, but it's the words here that are used show that it's covering a large amount of time and history in scripture. But in verse one, it says, and there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head, a crown of 12 stars. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. 
And there appeared another wonder in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. And his tail drew down a third part of the stars from heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man child who was, a, uh, was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had the place prepared for uh, prepared of God uh, that she should feed her, uh, that they should feed her uh, uh, there a thousand two hundred and three score days. Uh, but you see this caught up. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we see her caught up or him caught up. Right. Uh, in this idea of, of Jesus discovering a lot of time right he died and we know that he went down into to Hades and preached the message down there and then he was caught up uh went through the heavens and then sat down at the right hand of God uh, but you see this idea of caught up there or raptured and so as we look at Philip back in chapter 8 he was physically taken from one location to another right he was in the desert right here in between the, the Boy, I need to put my map up. It would help, right? Well, we have this location here in the middle of Jerusalem and, and where, where uh, the Ethiopian eunuch was headed to. And they met there somewhere in the middle in this intersection. And guess what? The Holy Spirit snatched him up and took him over to the coast to where Azotus is. I guess I could quickly draw a map up there, but I'll probably make a mistake. So I'm going to leave it alone. We'll come back to it next week. And so we see the reaction of the eunuch. What does the eunuch say to all of this? Go back to uh, Acts chapter 8. What would you say to all of this? <laughs> You've just been reading through Isaiah. I mean, you had no idea what you were reading before. Now this guy has appeared out of nowhere and he clarifies the scripture to you. And then he's gone within a second. Right? What, what, what do you say to something like that? You say, well... I guess you say thank you, God, for, for saving me, right, and allowing me to see this amazing uh, appearance. But uh, what, what does the Ethiopian eunuch say? Uh, it says in verse 39 uh, that when or and when they were come out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went away rejoicing. And so you see this this brought him great joy uh, over all that's happened here. Uh, and you, it'd be interesting to know the story of this guy. Uh, what was his background? You know, <laughs> what was ever, what was happening to him before this? What were some of the things that led up to this point? Um, but we don't get that that kind of detail to fill in. Now, what happens to Philip from there? In verse 40, we see that he's translated to Azotus. And so uh, both. Uh, but Philip was found at Azotus passing through. Uh, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Now, if we were uh, looking, he went over here to the coastline. Azotus is somewhere uh, over there. And then he goes up north all the way to Caesarea. And he's preaching the gospel in all of the cities on the way up. Now, I'm. You guys are looking at my imaginary cities there right on the board. <laughs> and so in verse 40, uh, we see Philip was found. Now, this word for found is an interesting word. And I did a study on it when I first came back here, uh, the passive version of it, because it's very interesting. Uh, found is from our word Eureka. You've heard that word before. There's uh, Eureka, California. 
And I, I'm told they named it that because they found gold in that place, right? Eureka, we found it. Um, so he was found. Other people saw him, right? Other people saw him in this place. So just as he left from this one place where he was seen by the eunuch, other people saw him appear here and they say, whoa, where did this guy come from? And, and he goes on from there. Uh, but we see this uh, passive voice emphasizes that the Holy Spirit moved him and that others uh, saw him in that place. And Azotus is west of his location, again, toward the, the coastline, if you're looking at a visual map in your head. And his gospelizing went all the way uh, from where he was in Azotus all the way to uh, north. And Caesarea is quite, quite a, a bit up the coastline there. And so... He went up uh, preaching the gospel. So I, I promised I would make it through verse, uh, uh, chapter 8 today, and I did. <laughs> We're in the chapter 9. And so let's uh, read the first several verses here, and then we'll introduce. Let's just read to verse 10. In verse 1 of chapter 9, it says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they be whether they were men, men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near to Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou art persecuting. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be uh, told to thee what thou must do. And, then, uh, and, and the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul rose from the earth, and when his eyes were open, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was uh, three days without sight, and neither did he eat nor drink. And so we see a very amazing occurrence here uh, for Paul. Now, uh, here he is, the same one that was standing at the feet or had those uh, lay their coats at his feet. Right. So he was overseeing the stoning of Stephen. He's the same one that after the stoning of Stephen spearheaded this great persecution against the church. And he's trying to take it to another level here in chapter nine. And what does God say? Enough, <laughs> enough, buddy. It's time to, to stop. And guess what? You're going to be a weapon for me, right? Instead of being a weapon against me, you're going to be a weapon for me. Now, uh, there's some very interesting things that can be said about Paul and about his his sorrow for what he did. Right. I don't think over the course of his whole ministry that he ever truly forgave himself for what he did before, because you see him alluding to it all the time. Right. Go with me over to First Corinthians chapter 15. And you can only imagine we, we as human beings can be uh, very critical and, and rightfully so sometimes to other actions but not considering what led people to certain actions. Now, if you're looking at Paul, he's thinking, hey, this is good. <laughs> I'm absolutely doing the right thing. These people are enemies of God, right? 
They are they are blasphemers. They they they're telling mistruths and they're disparaging the law. We've got to do something about this. And in his mind, the best thing that he could do was to eliminate them, right? To totally eliminate the threat. But we see the same ferocity that he used for persecuting the church before. As God deals with him, he uses that same energy to preach the gospel and to bring people to Christ. And so uh, pick it up in, in verse, uh, verse 6. Now, he's, he's given the gospel, and he's given the fact that there are witnesses to, it, to this gospel, right? There are people that saw uh, Christ resurrected from the dead. And so in verse 6, he says, After that he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. And after that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. Now, this is just my opinion. But as you're reading this, he says, last of all, me, he was seen of me. I think Paul saw the Lord prior to his his crucifixion. He was very involved in in the uh, in, 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 in the Jewish religion. And certainly would have saw the Lord in his interactions with him. So why does he say here, last of all, he was seen of me? Because I think after his conversion there on the road to Damascus, he saw him again. right? And he saw him with new eyes, not ones that are persecuting the church, but ones that are willing to do what he desired for him to do. What does it say over there in Galatians? uh, Galatians, I was not taught by men. I didn't receive anything that I received from man. I received it directly from the Lord. And so we see this uh, with him. But in verse nine, it says, for I am the least of the apostles. Then I'm not sufficient to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now, here people will want to put Paul up on this high pedestal. Right. And he says, no, 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 not me. Right. I am what I am. He he never denies what he is in Christ, but he certainly sees himself for what he is and says, hey, I don't deserve to be called anything. If not for the grace of God, what would he still be doing? He would still be hunting down believers and killing them. And yet here we see in chapter 15 that he's preaching the gospel. Verse 9, he says, uh, verse 10, excuse me, he says, but the great by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace, which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was what's with me. And so I think, hey, Paul has easy motivation to continue on his path preaching the gospel, right? Because he remembers what he was and what he did. And that causes him to to go forward, right? And to continue on uh, spreading the message of the gospel. And so as we go back over to... Uh, I got carried away there (laughs) to Acts chapter nine. And we start setting up uh, what is to become here and we're out of time. Uh, Well, we'll see the obedience of Saul to his calling. Right. This is not a man. And to me, it shows the fact that this is a man who was truly willing to serve God. Right. Because if he was so obstinate and thinking that his way was the right way, when when God struck him dead he, or struck him to the ground, he would have said, no, I'm going to keep doing what I was doing. 
but he immediately turned around and started doing what God desired for him to do. And that took some faith, right? Because he's having to go and listen to other people for that instruction and people who he would have been persecuting before. And we see their hesitance to him when, when he starts coming around. Uh, so this is very interesting. Things we'll get into here moving forward. Uh, but you see this religious zeal that he had in verses one and two. And you're going to see God can take that zeal, right? He can take what we mean for evil and use it for good purposes. And we're going to see that with Paul. And so we'll get into chapter nine. I think this is a perfect uh, breaking spot. That's why I didn't go into any of the, the text there in the chapter. And we'll start uh, back next week. Well, it'll be the week after next because I preach next Sunday. Uh, but uh, first week in June, first week in June, we'll, we'll start back uh, on this one. All right, let's pray. Father, we're grateful uh, for this day and grateful for, uh, again, that you're able to use anybody, Father. Um, we, we look at people and we can certainly uh, see the evil things that people do and can forget that uh, you are able to restore anyone. And it is, uh, there is no sin or evil that can be done on this earth that could outsend your or outdo uh, your grace that you provided through your son, Jesus Christ. And so we're grateful for that. Uh, we're grateful and excited to see uh, how this story develops with Paul as we move forward through the book of Acts and to see uh, the impact that he had on the early church and to uh, where we're at today uh, will be a great thing. And so we're grateful for these things. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.